0: ...saying about the Lord. He's saying the earth belongs to the Lord because He created it. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 give us the beautiful story of recounting the creation of the universe, of everything. The Hebrew says He created all things we can see and all things that we cannot see. The things we cannot see and the things that we can see belong to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness are everything that fills it. Is the Lord's? That's all creatures, all plants, all rocks, all all things. We look out over, we climb up on a hill, tall hill, and we look out over a valley, and we say, "Who does this belong to?" It belongs to God. If we get twenty-five thousand feet above it, the Earth, and look down, and say, "Who does this belong to?" We say it belongs to God. If we get into the orbit of the Earth. What is overwhelmingly true about all the astronauts? They were amazed that this belongs to God. And as they sat on the moon and looked back to the earth, the only thing they could think of was Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You know why? Because everything in this earth belongs to Him. It's His. He owns it. He rules it. He created it. But it's not just enough for David to say that the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it belongs to him, but he becomes more specific because it's not just things that God owns or rules or is sovereign over or created, but it's mankind that God made. Look at the second half of the verse. He not only created the earth, he not only created all that fills it in 1b, but in 1c, in the third part of the first verse, he created and rules over humanity. The world... And all of those who dwell therein. In the Hebrew, the idea is of humans dwelling. Only humans dwell. Creatures live, humans dwell. That's a more intimate term in the Hebrew. Tabernacle among. Ha- take up residence in. All the other animals just live here. We actually make residence. We live here. And we are passionately in community together. And he says, the Lord rules over all the earth, all that fills in it, all that fills it, and the world and everyone who dwells in it belongs to God. That means everybody sitting in this auditorium right now, let me tell you something, you ultimately belong to God. You are not the captain of your own ship. You do not hold your fate in your hands. You cannot do whatever you please and expect it to turn out okay. It won't. It doesn't take very long in life for us to figure this out, does it? I mean, it's only really arrogant and, or ignorant people who pass the age of, say, 25 or 30 still believe they're the masters of their own fate. I mean, teenagers are both arrogant and ignorant. I don't mean to offend you, teenagers. I was that way too, right? But the older you get and progress through life, the more life slaps you in the face with you don't control this. Something bigger than you rules and reigns. Right? And so David is confessing that. He's worshiping the Lord as the one who created it and sustains it, holds it all together. But verse 2, it may not stand out to us, but this is the one that would have been controversial in David's day. Look what he says. He founded it on the sea. And he established it upon the waters or upon the rivers. Now, in the Canaanite culture, which David would have been familiar with, the Philistines and all they all boasted of gods that ruled the earth. They all believed their god ruled the earth. The Philistines, Dagon. Dagon rules the earth, right? None of them believed that anything, not even their god, ruled the sea. The sea was seen as a place of chaos, The sea was seen as a place of evil. The sea was seen as a place of just complete and utter, uh, each creature for itself, fending for itself kind of place. Think of all the mythology of the world. What does it say about the sea? The boats sail off and they fall off the end of the earth, or the dragons eat them, or the sea creatures come up, or the serpents wrap around them. There's all these tales that go through life. Why? Because even down to Roman culture, nobody believed anybody ruled the sea. Except the Hebrew people. David said, my God not only rules the earth. He not only rules the things of the earth and the people of the earth. But my God is sovereign over the sea. He's saying, listen, you think chaos is taking place? There's no such thing as chaos. There's no such thing as disorder. My God plans the paths of the fish. And he sets their courses. He's in control of everything. This is an ultimate expression of God's sovereign rule and reign. He created it, and he sustains it. Our family, Hope, uh, uh, the modern Facebook takes all the surprise out of el- illustrations you want to use, you know? Our family went to the aquarium. If you follow my wife on twi- on uh, Facebook, you got that yesterday. We spent six hours in this aquarium. It is marvelous. I love aquariums. I love to take my kids to aquariums because I try to get each one of them at different times and say, Look at that. You see that? God made that. These funky little creatures that are living creatures that have no head, no eyes, no ears, no feet. They're suctioned to the bottom of the ocean, but they're animals. I'm not going to try to say their name, Amy. That's embarrassing i tried to pronounce it in my Mississippi country boy way and she's like, I don't think that's the way you say it, so I'm not going to say it. But you don't know, it's kind of red, it's white on the inside, has a thing that opens and closes on plankton and such. Stuck down there at the bottom. It's, It's an animal. God made that. He designed it. It's not chaotic. It's not an accident that it's there. God put it there. And the sea is in perfect balance. Every creature has a place, has a job that it does. Even sharks, which we are so terrified of, even sharks. And as the little film we watched says, sharks are not trying to eat people. They sometimes do because we get in their way, but that's not their intent in the world. They're trying to balance the ecosystem. They're doing their job. We stood at this magnificent tank, 6.3 million gallons of water. Just fun fact, that would take your water hose at home, kids, 15 months to fill up if it just ran continually water just running at full speed out of your water hose, 15 months to fill this tank up. It's a lot of water, 50 million pounds of water in this tank. And they have four whale sharks, the largest fish in the world, swimming around, swimming around. And I just stood in utter amazement at the coral reef and all the colors and all the designs and all the different jobs of all these different fish. Even the little fish that scrubs along on the coral and eats. And you see the sand and the refuse coming out of his gills. It's just amazing. And David says, all of that was created and is ruled over by our Lord. He created the earth and everything that fills it. He created humans and he rules over them. He created the chaotic seas. They are not chaotic. He has planned their courses. They do exactly as he bids. It is amazing when we stop and think about who our God is. It inspires us to ask the question that comes to us in verse 3. Because you see, He's not only the creator and the sustainer of the world, but He is holy and He is gracious towards His people. Who then can approach the hill of the Lord? If you didn't have that thought in your mind, you should. When you think about the greatness of the creation that surrounds us, and then you think there's invisible things, angels and demons and principalities and rulers and authorities that I don't see with my physical eyes that exist and God rules over them. What that should cause little people like me and you to do is fall on our face and say, who can come near this God? Moses said, show me your glory. And what did God say? No man sees my face and lives. Why? Because he's holy. Holy just simply means set apart. It also means it's a character trait of perfection. There's nothing out of place in Him. He's perfect. He's undefiled. He's untouched by sin. He is holy. Who shall ascend? Who shall climb the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? This is the question before us. Because He's perfectly holy. He's unapproachable. He dwells in what? Unapproachable light. Paul tells us that we don't stand a chance with this God. We are sinful. We are fallen. We are, I, do I have to prove that to you? I don't have to prove it to myself. And I don't think I really have to prove it to you. We're all fallen. All of us fail. We are not perfect. How then can we approach Him? I want to take the verses out of order because if not, then it can, it can confuse us. Okay, so I want to try to make it plain. That's my job to try to make this plain. He is perfectly holy and unapproachable, we see in verse 3 by the question. But secondly, He's gracious to give His people the righteousness that He requires. Look at verse 5. Skip 4 for a moment and go to 5. He will receive, this man that David's talking about, will receive from the Lord the righteousness from the God of his salvation. What a beautiful promise. God requires perfection. God requires perfect holiness. God requires that you be like him. Peter phrased it from the Leviticus passage, didn't he? Be holy as God is holy. That's the command from the hill of God. Be holy like God. And it should cause all of us not to rise up in pride and say, I'm a good person. I like my chances. It should cause all of us to fear and tremble and to cry out to God. Who can come to God? And the answer, the one he bestows grace on. Nothing you've done earns standing before God. And nothing you've done makes you so unlovable that you can't stand before God. This is the great truth of the Bible. No matter who you are, no matter how bad your life has been, no matter how bad it is today, you can come to Him by His own gracious goodness. He will give you the righteousness necessary for you to stand in His holy hill. This is the Old Testament, folks. Isn't it? I didn't didn't have like a slip of memory, right? This is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament writer is telling us what the New Testament tells us. the Hebrew people did not go before God with their sacrifices and say, see, I earned my right to be here. They went before God offering sacrifices because they knew they had no standing. And what they were saying by their acts of obedience was, we need you. We need your righteousness. We don't have it. We're sinners. They were crying out to God for the promise of His grace. Hold your place in Psalm 24, maybe Paul can help us understand it a little easier. Romans chapter 3. Paul goes through a list of our fallenness. And he says, What then, verse 9, Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged it all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is his estimate of all of mankind, both Jews and non-Jews. We're all sinners. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Who can approach the hill of the Lord? Nobody. That's the answer. No one can come to Him. Who can stand in His holy court? None of us. If we were to enter that holy court on our own works, we would be evaporated. Before his righteousness. He is a holy fire that fully consumes. The writer of Hebrews says. But that's not the end of the passage. He says by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness of it as we see today. It's in verse 5 of chapter 24. He will give them blessing and righteousness. That's the testimony of what God will do for them. So Paul says it's in the law and it's in the prophets. It was promised. How will we gain it, this righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Who can approach the throne of God? The one who believes in Christ is the New Testament answer. Or David's answer would be the one who believes that God is a giver of grace to those who trust in Him. That's who can come before Him. That's who can stand before Him. Isn't that amazing? God demands holiness and then He supplies it. God says, to come in my court, you have to be perfect. You're not perfect. I'll give you perfection. Perfection. And he didn't just do it in some wave the wand magic way. He gave us his own self in his son to be our righteousness. For all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We quote that verse out of context, don't we? In context, what he's saying is everyone is fallen and everyone needs Christ. Everyone needs Christ. If you're here today and you can hear my voice, you need Christ. Without Him, you cannot stand on His holy hill. You cannot stand in His presence, in His holy court. You will be judged unworthy, and you will suffer forever in eternal punishment. But with Christ, you stand. And with Christ, you approach the holy hill. He is your righteousness, people. That's what David's saying. This God who created the world and the earth and all that fills it and humanity and rules even over the sea has provided for you a perfection which you could never have on your own. His name is Jesus. And so we see from Romans 3 this beautiful picture of God's love through His grace. The blessing that we receive from the righteousness from God the Father of our salvation. Such, he says, is the generation. His holy people are gracious. uh, He's gracious towards His holy people and provides them with the holiness they need so they can be in relationship with Him. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now what David's saying is, God gives you the righteousness you need to come into His presence, so therefore you will seek His presence. You will look for a relationship with Him. This idea of seeking His face. It doesn't, it doesn't sound all that uh, impressive in our day, but do you see what he's saying? If you think about it, it's very impressive. This God of verses 1 and 2 that created everything, rules everything, sovereignly reigns, we have a face-to-face relationship with him in Christ. A personal relationship. He told Moses, anyone who sees my face will not live. In your own works, you would die immediately were you in his presence like that, in that kind of intimate setting. But in Christ, you have relationship with him. Face-to-face, personal. He knows you and you know Him. He is your shepherd. He is your shepherd who died on the cross. He is your shepherd who walked with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He is your shepherd reigning and ruling. Isn't that amazing? I think we take it such for granted because we talk about it so flippantly now in our day. But David is amazed by this fact. We will have personal relationship with him. So what about verse 4? What is it saying? He not only supplies the righteousness He requires through the graciousness of His Son, but He also supplies us with the sanctification that we need. The the making us holy process. Here in verse 4, He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to a false idol and does not swear deceitfully, Who can come before God? The one who has the righteousness of Christ supplied by God can come before God because he will be pure in his hands, pure in the things that touch the world, and pure inside, internally, in his heart. Why? Again, because Christ is in him. Christ is working in him. Listen, if you want to test salvation, if you want to know whether you be in Christ or not, John tells us several ways to do it. One way is... To know whether you love God. And if you want to know whether you love God, you know whether you love His people. John says. Whether you hate evil. In other words, if you're not being sanctified. If you look at your life, you say, I'm no different today really than I was a year ago. Or five years ago. Or ten years ago. You have to say, something's not right about me. Because when God takes up residence in your life, what happens? You change. Now, do you become perfect in this life? Never. In this life, never. The Bible doesn't teach us we become perfect, but we become more and more holy. I take the kids through the catechism, and we talk about it all the time, don't we, know? God sanctifies us. What does that mean? The catechism says that means that God makes us more and more holy, more and more holy. In other words, we look back at our life, David says, and because we've been given the righteousness of Christ in God, we can approach the hill of God with the assurance that He will not reject us. One of the things we know as we're approaching the hill of God is that God has changed us so that our hearts and our hands are pure. Not perfect, but pure. Because of our devotion to Him, our lives are steadily under renovation and change. The old man is dead and behold all things have become new creation. That's the promise of God in 2 Corinthians 5. So we see that He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the holy and gracious one towards His people. But I want to end by saying He is sovereign and glorious. He is sovereign and glorious. We see this in verses 7-10. through This is really the part of the passage that I just fell in love with studying. All of that You thought I was excited about that. I'm like a five out of ten about that because I just really can't comprehend it all, right? I just accept a lot of that by faith. But this last part I can see with my eyes. I can see it in the mind's eye, and it makes me a ten out of ten. Okay? So if I get loud at this point, just forgive me. He says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. What is that? This chorus that's sounding back and forth between the singer and the choir. The singer and the choir. The singer and the choir. It's this repeat that's going on. And we got to know something about Psalm 24, okay? I believe it is a messianic psalm. We've already talked about that. If you weren't with us, that simply means this is a psalm about Jesus, it's a prophetic psalm about Christ. It finds its fulfillment in Christ. But it also comes from a historical context. And I believe David wrote this psalm in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this time in his life. Let's flip to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Take your Bible and hold your place in Psalm 24. Go to Samuel, 2 Samuel 6. The Philistines have conquered the people and taken the ark of God. The people were disobedient. They thought, we'll take the ark of the covenant out into the field of battle. Because that'll be a good luck charm for us. Yeah, bad idea. God didn't tell him to do it. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? It contained the Ten Commandments. It contained a bowl of the manna which fell from heaven. It contained the rod of Aaron and Moses here, the budding rod. All right. It had built of gold, over a cake wood overlaid with gold. It was to be held by poles, not touched, because on the lid was the throne of God. The Jewish people knew that God tabernacled with his people by coming into the Holy of Holies and seating himself at the Ark of the Covenant. Now they're treating it, this is how trivial people become about religion. They're treating it like a good luck charm. This is how silly. They go out and they fight this battle and they have the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines whip them good. And they take the Ark. They go home in utter defeat. And the ark goes to reside in the temple of an idol. It takes its place among the other gods of the earth. Can you imagine what's going on in that context? And David gets word, and he is furious. And he takes his men and he goes out into Philistia. And he conquers these people. And he takes back the ark of the covenant. And it's in that context. 2 Samuel 6 David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, who is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ah Ahioh. The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahiah went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Let me tell you what that means. God had told them to carry it on poles, never on a cart. Why? Because of what just happened. When that oxen stumbled, the ark started to tip, and he thought he was doing a good thing. I don't want it to fall. It might get tarnished. And he stuck his hands. He approached God in an uncalled-for, unholy way. And what did God do? Because he's holy, he struck him dead. You can't come to God however you choose. You come to God the way he calls you to come. Or you better not come. And that's the scene that David says The Lord is the Lord of the earth, all that fill it. He's the Lord of all humanity. He rules even over the supposed chaos of the sea. Who can approach a holy God that strikes a man dead for touching an ark? Who can do that? Who can stand in his presence? The one who has a pure hands and a cleansed heart. That's the one who can stand. Uzzah didn't have a cleansed heart. He didn't have pure hands. And he came before God and God struck him dead. The one who has had his righteousness supplied by God as a blessing and as a gift. And who has sought relationship with him face to face. This is the one who can come. He wrote that in this context. And this is what happened. I don't want to read it for time's sake, all of it. But look at verse, um, if you look at verse 12, this is what it says. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Adam and the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark, they are now carrying it the way they're supposed to. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. What were they shouting? What were they shouting? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And the, sh- the chorus resounded, Who is this king of glory? And David's answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. They chanted this thing as they brought the ark of God back into the city of Jerusalem. That's the historical context. David wrote this psalm and then he sang it as he brought God's throne symbolically on the earth back into the holy city, symbolically Jerusalem on the earth is beautiful, right? And if that was the end of the story, we'd say, man, this is awesome. We serve a great God, but that's not the end of the story. This psalm then was taken up by the Jews and sung on the first day of every week. The temple sang forth this song, and the people of Israel around the temple sang it back in response. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. They did that generation after generation after generation after generation. Over a thousand years passed. And they sang this song every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning from the temple. From wherever they were worshiping at the time. This is what they sang. And then Matthew writes in chapter 21. They drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. They did this on Sunday. The first day of the week. And Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them. Bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of beasts of burden. Again, the presence of God is riding on a donkey, this time by plan. The disciples went, and they came to Jesus, had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put them in their cloaks, and they sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? In the temple, the priests who hated Christ were saying, Lift up your, your heads, O ye gates, and lift yourself up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And Jesus is riding into town as they sing it to Him. Thousand years passes of them going through the motions, going through the motions, going through the motions, and then their king came, the king of glory. And they're singing his song. They're singing the song of the glorious shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and they don't even recognize him. And they're in there singing away. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift yourself up, you ancient doors. Who is this king of glory? You get part of the question from Matthew, don't you? The town was asking what question? Who is this? Some of you sit in here Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. You associate with the people of God, the things of God. You do not know Him. And what I'm saying to you is the King of glory that you need to know is Jesus Christ. He can be for you your righteousness that you might stand before God in His presence. And you will become more and more like Him. He is the king of glory. He fulfilled Psalm 24. He's the Lord of hosts. If that was the end of the story, well, we could leave shouting. But that ain't the end of the story. Because in Revelation chapter 21, we're told the final entrance of the king of glory will happen. And it is a certainty. It will take place. As the John looked, he saw the holy Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be to them as their God. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give them springs of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. This is the final entrance of the King of Glory into the final Jerusalem. And what he says is, you're either with me or you burn. You're either with me and you're my people or you face an eternal judgment. There's no second chances. It is appointed to every man once to live and then die and then judgment. And what Jesus is saying through this psalm to us, through the pen of David so long ago, is that like the Ark of the Covenant, was captured from the Philistines and brought back into the city. And like Jesus entered in, in the triumphal entry, back into Jerusalem, he will come a second time. He will come again. And when he does, we will sing we will sing, and we will praise. And I just have to think that one of the songs we will sing will be, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And lift them up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I'm calling you, not just me, but Christ himself through his spirit is calling you today to believe, to trust, to have faith in this King. To believe in him. He says, anyone who comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. Don't you want him? Don't you see your need for him? Then simply call to him. Confess your sin and your fallenness, your unworthiness, your brokenness, and your need for his perfection. And he will receive you. He will bless you. He will keep you. And when he comes into that great city of Jerusalem, we will go with him and you will be singing this song. He's the king of glory. He has come in. And we are his people. He is our God. Let's pray. Father, as we think on your word, it is astounding. A thousand years have passed and you are not slow to work, but you are patient, not willing that any of your children should perish, but all should come to the same saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Two thousand years have passed and you are not slow. You are working in perfect time. And the end is coming. The day when no man can change. The outcome is sealed. It's coming. As sure as the ark went back into the city. As sure as Jesus entered into the city. He will enter into that city. The eternal city. And we desire Jesus to be with you on that day. Singing your praise. Change our hearts that we might believe in you. Cause us to long and thirst for your righteousness. It's in your name I pray. Amen. For all of those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He left two ordinances for us in the church. One is baptism. We celebrate it frequently here at Grace Fellowship. When someone comes into full faith and makes that public through the baptism of water, confesses their faith in Christ, says, I'm with Him and He is with me. We do that regularly. We also celebrate regularly. Twice a month we celebrate The Lord's Supper, communion, as it's sometimes called. This is a time for God's people to gather with Him and to outwardly do what we inwardly do every day, commune with Him. He's offered this as a special relationship to us. And listen, it's only for His people. You're here and you're not a believer. You you don't belong to Christ. Don't take from this supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that many people took the supper unadvisedly and they became sick and some of them even died because they trampled underfoot the blood of Christ is the idea they came without an invitation or accepted invitation they had rejected Christ and they came and took the outward appearance of that thing I'm telling you don't do that you're you're here and you're not a Christian we love you and we love you too much to offer this to you this is for God's people this is a time for God's people to come together with Him. So what do you do as a lost person? You're sitting there, you say, well, that's not that's not nice. I mean, that's not fair. You're pointing me out. Yes, God's pointing you out. You say, well, the people around me are going to wonder why I didn't go take it. That's okay, because they once were just like you. They're no better than you. What should you be doing then, lost man, lost woman, lost child? You don't know Christ yet. You haven't come into a public relationship with Him. What do I do during this time? What you do is contemplate your need for Him. You just sit and think, I don't know Christ. If I die this moment, what will happen to me? Well, if He's right, if the pastor's right, then what the Bible says is, I'm I'm a sinner, and I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to be separated from God. Worse than being separated from this communion, you'll be separated from the holy communion of heaven. You're to sit and watch and observe and think of your own life. And I pray that it will be a mode of God bringing you to Himself. That even as we take this outward communion, you would begin to commune with God in your own heart. And you'd come to Him. So lost people, please don't come. We love you too much for that. But if you're a child of God and you're with us today, it doesn't matter if you're a member of this church or a member of another church, but all of those who have been baptized into the name of Christ and have come and made their faith public and now are members of His body universal, we invite you to come to take this communion. It's open to you, and it's a beautiful supper. What it is is the bread is a symbol of God's uh, flesh, Jesus' flesh, and the juice is a symbol of His blood. Both represent His life, which He gave to us. So when we take them in, John 6 says we eat His flesh and we drink His blood that we might live forever. That's what we're symbolizing outwardly. And so, just in preparation of that for our hearts, um, we're going to look at the Belgic Confession of Faith, and uh, we're going to actually um, go through. If you have your uh, God, your worship God, we don't have a screen, so we'll just do it through the worship God. If you're sitting near somebody that has a worship God, we're going to make this confession together. All right. So, if you could, let's all stand as we make confession. Grace Fellowship, what do you believe about the work of God? We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and also very just, sent His Son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed in order to bear in it the punishment of sin by His most bitter passion and death. And what do you believe about the work of Jesus Christ? We believe that Jesus Christ presented Himself in our name before His Father to appease the wrath with full satisfaction by offering Himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out His precious blood for the cleansing of our sins, as the prophets had predicted. Why did He endure all things? He endured all of this for the forgiveness of our sins. What comfort does this give you? We find all comforts in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means to reconcile ourselves with God than this one and only sacrifice, once made, which renders believers perfect forever. You may be seated. Here at Grace Fellowship, the way we take communion is a little different maybe than you're used to, but we do it intentionally intentionally. What we do is we offer the bread and the juice, and we call you as a people of God to come forward and partake of this. Um, What are we symbolizing? We're symbolizing through you coming forward and taking of this bread and this juice, taking it from the utensils here and returning to your seat. We're symbolizing that when you come to Christ, you come all by yourself. You don't get in because of your friend, you don't come to Christ because your family's Christian. You come to Christ because he calls you personally to come to him. So we come and each of you as children of God will take the juice and the bread and return to your seat. We'll wait patiently for all the believers in the in the place to take. We'll wait patiently and after everyone's received the communion elements, we'll actually take them in together. Why? Because you're not only are you saved individually, but you're saved into a community of faith. And we want to show that by our taking this communion together. We don't stand alone by ourselves as Christians do. We? There's no Lone Ranger Christians, somebody said, but rather we're saved into the body of Christ. So you come by yourself, you take, you sit, you wait patiently, everyone takes. And then we take them in together to symbolize that community. That unity that we have because we've been baptized with one baptism. We've been put in one spirit with one Lord and one holy communion with Him. All right? So the table's open. If you're a child of God, I invite you to come and to take both the juice and the bread at this time.